Thank you. Welcome. Welcome. How are you all doing tonight? Are you doing okay? Good, great. Well, we are really excited to have you here in the house tonight. My name is Molly Quinn. I'm the Director of Public Programming here at Housing Works Bookstore Cafe. We are really excited to welcome you to um, one of tonight's panels for the Penn Festival and are excited to welcome all of our friends from Penn here in the house tonight as well. So before we get started with tonight's exceptional panel, I'm just going to take about 30 seconds of your time to tell you a few key things about this bookstore and this organization, all of the work that we do here at Housing Works all year long. So Housing Works is a healing community of people living with and affected by HIV and AIDS. Our mission is to end the dual crises of homelessness and AIDS through relentless advocacy, the provision of life-saving services, and entrepreneurial businesses that sustain our efforts. So that last part is what this bookstore is, one of our entrepreneurial businesses. And the way that works is that every single thing here in this bookstore is donated to us, all of these books and movies and LPs, and the team of booksellers and bartenders and baristas that help us out here at Housing Works is made up of volunteers, which is so wonderful. So as you purchase books or coffees or beers tonight, we hope you will give our volunteers volunteers, an extra smile, and an extra thank you. There are a number of ways to get involved with all the wonderful work that we do here at this organization. You can donate your old books to Housing Works. You can volunteer your time with us. You can host events just like this one. You can also rent out the space for private use. We have private functions like weddings here at the bookstore almost every single weekend. So if you happen to be looking for a private venue, we hope you will check out all of that information, which is all available online. All of our events, like public programs and sales and fun things going on at the store, is always available online at housingworks.org events. And these postcards that are behind me are also up at the register, which list our entire May calendar. We have really great readings and comedy nights, storytelling competitions, panels, book launches, and other really fun things at the store. So we hope you will come back and see us really soon. You can also catch up with us on social media, on Twitter and on Instagram, we're at HousingWorksBKS, which is another great way to keep up with our events calendar, our sales, and all the other cool things that we do here at HousingWorks. All right. So I'm very, very glad to welcome you all here tonight. I want to say a special thank you to our friends and colleagues at PEN America for bringing part of the festival here to our beautiful bookstore. And thank you all for coming out tonight. So we're going to get started. We're going to watch a really quick video from PEN, and then your panelists are going to join you. And I'm just going to read our bio of our amazing, amazing moderator tonight before the video. So I'm going to read the bio, and then you're going to watch the video. And then she's going to come here. So you have to remember what you learned and who that is. Can you do that? There's a video, it's not long, you can remember, okay. So our moderator tonight is the amazing Amy Gall. Amy Gall's work has appeared or is forthcoming in Tin House, Vice, the LA Review of Books, Poets and Writers, Guernica, Brooklyn Magazine, Joyland, Pink, among others. She earned her MFA in creative writing from the New School and is currently working on a collection of essays about sex, violence, and the body. So here's the video and then there's gonna be Amy, thank you. Words. They're just words. In Turkey, President Erdogan uses words to describe journalists he doesn't like. He calls them ignorant, agents of subversion, foreign spies, terrorists. As of January, at least 151 writers and journalists in Turkey have been arrested and detained without charge or are awaiting trial. Words. In China, censors simply delete the ones they don't like. President Xi Jinping told writers and artists they should work toward promoting party ideology. 
Nobel laureate Liu Xiaobo penned seven sentences and is serving 11 years in prison. Words. Iranian Shiva Nazar Ahari protested for human rights. Saudi Arabian Ashraf Fayyad wrote a book of poetry. Filmmaker Oleg Sentsov criticized the Russian government. They're still behind bars. Words. Asked how the government might handle journalists who do not stick to the official line, Thailand's Prime Minister, General Prayut Chanocha, used these words. We'll probably just execute them. In Mexico, Pedro Tamayo Rosas, Manuel Torres, Francisco Pachecho, Anibal Flores Salazar, and more than 70 other writers and journalists have been murdered for their words. Words. They're just words. And ideas. And films. And songs. And stories. And research. And internet postings. And Penn's been advocating for them and their authors around the world for almost a century. In countries like Russia, Egypt, Colombia, Bangladesh, and Eritrea. Countries where words are not free, and free thinkers are in danger. So when the President of the United States calls journalists the enemy of the American people, or says a news organization is going to suffer the consequences, when he puts arts and humanities on the chopping block and denies the meaning of words, it reminds us of other words from other leaders and leads us to raise the question, can it happen here? And raise the alarm, it can happen here. Because these aren't just words we're fighting for. They're the lifeblood of our freedom. Words transcend borders and drive our curiosity. They're how we share, understand others, tell stories, and come together. Words allow us to know. They allow us to wonder, to kid, to joke, to celebrate, to love. Words are truth, and they deserve protection. Protection in Myanmar in Mexico, in Russia, in Turkey, and right here in America. We need to be strong for words, and to be strong, we must come together. Pen America, louder together. I'm Amy, and uh, welcome to Forbidden to Liberated, which is a discussion of sexual empowerment and sexual taboos, and I don't know, maybe if we have time, just general conversations about our sex lives, I don't know. <laughs> um, I wanna thank Pan America and the World Voices Festival and Housing Works for always putting together such incredible programming, and I wanna thank all the speakers who are here tonight. This is really an honor to be among you. And thanks to everybody for showing up. Um, so I'm gonna just read out everyone's bios and then we're all gonna read for about five minutes and then we'll start the discussion. So Sarah Barmack, right over there, is a freelance journalist and author based in Toronto. Her writing has appeared in McLean's, The Globe and Mail, The Toronto Star, Canadian Business Marketing and Reader's Digest. Mona El-Tahawi, 
She's right there. Is a feminist writer and public speaker. She's the author of Headscarves and Hymens, Why the Middle East Needs a Sexual Revolution, and she lives in Cairo and NYC. Jill Filipovic, she's right here, is a journalist and lawyer based in Nairobi and New York City. A contributing opinion writer for the New York Times, a regular columnist for Cosmo.com, and a former columnist for The Guardian, Filipovic centers her writing on the intersection of law, politics, gender, and foreign affairs. Her other work has appeared in The Washington Post, Time, and Foreign Policy. And Sabrina Jones is at the end is a comic book artist, writer, and editor who began her career with the activist art collective Carnival Knowledge and alternative comics World War III, Illustrated, and Girl Talk. Her books Race to Incarnate and Isadora Duncan were named great graphic novels by Yalsa. Jones is also the author and illustrator of Our Lady of Birth Control, a cartoonist encounter with Margaret Sanger. She lives in New York City. So we'll start with Sarah. Thank you so much. It's great to be here. I'm just going to read briefly from um, a book I published last year. It's called Closer Notes from the Orgasmic Frontier of Female Sexuality. And um, I'm just going to read a brief excerpt from it. Just to introduce it, the book... Um, it covers all kinds of different ways that women are exploring and exploding their sexuality today, um, pushing the boundaries of their own sexualities, uh, whether that's making their own porn or whether that's you know going to tantra classes and having hour-long orgasms. So this is just a brief excerpt of something like that. There are many ways of expanding your orgasmic repertoire. Just ask my friend Veronica, which is not her real name. She could write a few books on adventure herself, and her chutzpah has made her unlikely to ever need much help with anything, catching a man, enjoying sex. She's a high-powered media professional who travels the world and works for a well-known company. And in 2015, she was back at Burning Man, looking for new ways to push her personal boundaries. She'd already tried nudity in a public steam bath, which was fun. Getting into a dark box with openings through which strangers could stick their arms, groping whatever they could grab, which was strange. I also did this thing where that guy played my body to music, she said. That's when she and three female friends stumbled upon an unassuming place called Spanky's Wine Bar. A sign on the door said Sibrit. I walked in and I was like, whoa, what the fuck did I just sign up for, Veronica says. What she saw in a small private room was a sort of pommel horse cut in half with steps leading up to it and a seat and a pair of handlebars on top. On that seat was a vibrating device the size of a plum with a little rounded nub on the end. That was where ladies were invited to take a seat. The catch, if you call it a catch, was that the contraption was controlled by a joystick, and the joystick was operated by the doctor. The doctor was a husband and father of two in his 40s, attractive enough, she says, but not her type whose wife was staying at the same camp and approved of Hubby's project. In accordance with the rules of Burning Man, 
which asks every one of its 70,000 attendees to bring or do or perform something as a gift for everyone else, this was his contribution. He didn't have a sexual vibe at all, says Veronica. It was more like a nurse caring for you. He said that he specifically turns down all advances. The operator said he would talk or be quiet, touch the rider only if it helped get her off, and the rider could choose to be either naked or partly clothed. Veronica opted for no talking and no touching, but she said, I went full nude because why not? Finally, the Sybarit had a safety feature, a horn to honk in case you got overwhelmed, an old-timey bike horn. Assured by a friend who had tried it that it was worth her while, Veronica mounted the pommel horse. So, yeah, she says, six orgasms in 40 minutes. I had the weirdest one. Sometimes I get foot cramps, but this time I had hand cramps, and my whole face went numb. It was like an orgasm from the waist up. She never did honk the horn. After 20 minutes, she and the doctor was, were both giggling. He said my giggles were infectious, and exactly why he does this. The four friends each rode the contraption one after the other, a sterilizing alcohol wipe and a new condom on the device in between each, naturally, and emerged from the trailer in shaky hazes of pleasure, walking funny and laughing hysterically. We all walked out with the greatest faces, she says. I'd do it again in a heartbeat. Did she really feel comfortable, though? As nice as the guy was, he was a heterosexual dude. He must have been enjoying himself. Veronica made it clear, though, that there was no way that he was enjoying it as much as she was. I really honestly believe him when he said that it was all about bringing pleasure to women and returning the favor for being wonderful creatures who bring life into the world, she said. It sounds hippie-ish and ridiculous, but in the moment, it was earnest. Veronica is a heterosexual woman, but at that moment she felt no desire for any man, just the desire to sit on the little plum with a condom on it. She didn't mind doctor, nurse, operator, man, not in the slightest, but he wasn't a big part of her turn-on either. It was the pure play of it all, the feeling of being in a fit, strong body, the sensation and numbness and strangeness and laughter and weird nerve jolts coursing through her. There's a German word, functionslust, that has no equivalent in English. It means the pleasure of functioning, the enjoyment taken in performing something you do well, like a bird flying or an athlete scoring. On the Sybarit, Veronica felt functionslust. Thank you. Good evening, everyone. When I returned to Egypt for our revolution, I wanted to inhale Egyptian men. There is no other way to describe it. I felt a visceral need to take my guilt-free self, older and better able to withstand the cultural and religious freight under which I had once keeled, and try to find a man who had undergone a similar reckoning. It was well and good to march together, to risk our lives together confronting the regime. But what would happen after the protest was over? How would the impeccable politics those men held towards the regime hold up where the social and sexual revolutions were concerned? 
Amira, a 32-year-old who I had met at an event for self-defense in Cairo, echoed those words when we discussed whether the Egyptian revolution had transformed the home. I asked, is the revolution at home yet? I don't think so, not yet, she said. Because some of the men who participated in the revolution, who act like liberals outside the house, inside the house, they are no liberals. Still, I sought out and found men whose love of female liberation crossed the threshold of the home. Men whose gentle sides mitigated the violence women faced in public space, where so many of our bodies were hurt and violated. I found men who rejected our society's hypocrisy and double standards over female and male sexuality. I found men who were willing to be comfortable, who were willing to be comrades in our sexual revolution, who were willing to renounce the privilege that allows them the lazy option of sexual double standards. These men were my allies against any who would leave the revolution outside the bedroom. Very few people in the Arab world are willing to talk about sex that is not between a husband and a wife, and even less about sex that is not between a man and a woman. When an Egyptian friend of mine came out to me as a lesbian, she also explained why, despite long years of activism against the Mubarak regime, despite the way she'd risked her life and career as part of that activism, she was not ready to come out to her family or the public. I told her I supported her in whatever she felt was best for her at that time, and I was honored she trusted me with her confidence. As a sexually active woman, she was challenging many of our country's most sensitive taboos already, I knew. But with the added risk of the complication and censure that come with having sex with women in an intolerant society, there were so many forces pressing her into silence, into rendering that part of herself invisible. Lina Ben-Mehenni, ben the Tunisian feminist and activist, asks what the word freedom means. When people took to the streets in December 2010 in Tunisia, it's true they were calling for employment, freedom, dignity, she said. I think they weren't really ready to accept that freedom means all freedoms, including women's freedom, sexual freedom, individual freedom, all freedom. They're not ready for such a revolution. One book introduced me to the great female poets of desire in Arabic. Cla classical poems by Arab women, a bilingual anthology compiled and translated by Abdullah al-Odairi. Maurice Farhi, writing for the website Poetry Magazines, praised classical poems as follows. I cannot think of a collection that exclusively features women who boldly refuse to be voiceless in a world where the male hegemonic psychosis in various rabid modes, seeks to enslave and usurp them. This is a collection wherein women declare freely and proudly their equality with men." End quote. The collection's range of female poets from radically different eras is extraordinary, as is how fearlessly they speak about their desires. From the Umayyad Caliphate, 603 to 750, there is Dahna bint Mashal as she reprimands her husband. Lay off. You can't turn me on with a cuddle, a kiss, or scent. Only a thrust rocks out my strains until the ring of my toe falls on my sleeve. And Bint al-Hubab boasting of her adultery. Why are you raving mad, husband, just because I love another man? 
Go on, whip me. Every scar on my body will show the pain I cause you. From the Abbasid period, 750 to 1258, here is Safiya al-Baghdadiyah. I am the wonder of the world, the ravisher of hearts and minds. Once you've seen my stunning looks, you're a fallen man. An Atimad al-Rumaykiya from the 11th century who implores her lover with no compunction. I urge you to come faster than the wind, to mount my breast and firmly dig and plow my body, and don't let go until you flushed me thrice. What we've lost since the words of those bold and proudly desirous women. Conservatives will always charge that the language we use to frame our bodily desires and integrity is Western and blasphemous. But there has always been a language of female desire and pride in Arabic. It is ours to reclaim. Hi, I somehow left this out of my bio, but I'll be reading from a book that came out yesterday, The H-Spot, The Feminist Pursuit of Happiness. Um, as a kid, one of the most explicit messages I got about sex came from an unusual place, Christian horse camp. Like lots of preteen girls, I had a thing for horses, and the closest, cheapest, and easiest way for my parents to let me get my fix was to send me off for the weekend to a camp run by a local religious group. I was, in Christian horse camp parlance, unchurched, and the evening sermons led by a cool guy youth pastor were a new experience, especially the one focused on the evils of the Nike slogan, just do it. We should, we should not, we were told in no uncertain terms, just do it. And it was the special job of girls to make sure that when we were with boys, no one just did it. I came home asking my parents for a promise ring, a silver band that you wear on your wedding ring finger to symbolize a promise not to have sex that you then trade out for a wedding ring from your husband. Jill, you are 12, my mother told me. I think you're a little young to be making this decision. Two decades later, I write a lot about sex, and very little of it is sexy. Time and time again, I find myself as a journalist covering the moments in women's lives that are often some of the most difficult, as well as some of the most common. In 10 years of writing about women and sex, usually non-consensual sex, or political efforts to curtail non-procreative sex, or the aftermath of sex, it has been rare for me to report on sex as purely a recreational activity, let alone, one that, let alone on what makes for pleasurable sex. But even in the moments of their lives when they have been hurt sexually or when cultural hostility to sex was the source of trauma or frustration or inconvenience, just after they had been screamed at for walking into a Planned Parenthood to get birth control, for example, most of the women I've met in my job still either had or craved fulfilling, pleasurable sex lives. That kind of complexity and resilience the ability to experience profound sexual pleasure even after sex has been a source of pain, the fact that pleasure is central to so many women's lives, even as we're told we're sexual objects, not sexual beings, is perhaps definitional, definitional to the American female sexual experience. In my own life, a burgeoning feminism brought with it better relationships. As I became more engrossed in movements for gender equality while in college, and later as my work focused more on women's rights, I found myself becoming both more assertive with my own needs and more careful to ask about my partners. Just as I pushed for better and fairer compensation in my professional life, 
I pushed myself to talk to the people I dated more honestly, not just about sex, but about the contours of the relationship, whether one of us was doing more emotional labor, what we expected from the other, whether those expectations were shaped by biases and stereotypes we wanted to challenge. It didn't mean I always got exactly what I wanted, but it did force me to identify what that was and expose whether I was in a relationship that would offer it. Without a doubt, feminism made my professional life better and it made my romantic life better. It turns out this is not an anomaly. Feminist gains and feminist-minded relationships mean better sex across the board. Research has found that women who embrace non-traditional gender roles report higher levels of sexual satisfaction, and women who are more able to assert their desires and have those desires met in relationships are happier. By contrast, women who play by the feminine social script of partner-pleasing end up having worse sex. Women who have sex to please a partner are both more inhibited and less satisfied, while women who have sex to foster intimacy tend to be both more satisfied and more autonomous. And women who conform to traditional gender norms tend to be more sexually passive, which correlates with lower rates of sexual arousal and sexual function, and predictably, less sexual satisfaction. Americans, though, have a disordered relationship with sex and pleasure, and with female pleasure in particular. Narratives about female sexuality tend to put us in a few boxes. We're objects of male sexual desire, we're sluts impro improperly wielding our sexual power, we're alternately prudish or proper for withholding sex, or we're victims of sexual exploitation or abuse. We talk more about sex and watch more sexually suggestive and explicit material, it seems, than ever before. Ubiquitous online porn, racy television shows and ads, shock value, it happened to me, stories of sexual endeavors and humiliations on popular websites. Um, the Fifty Shades of Grey series, where a virgin who has never even masturbated enters a BDSM relationship with a sociopathic billionaire and finds true love. <laughs> Although American pop culture is soaked in sex, our politics remain at best uncomfortable with and at worst actively hostile to female sexual pleasure. Nearly a century after its invention and after decades of wide usage by American women, the birth control pill remains a source of debate in Congress and even the Supreme Court. Abortion is a perennial election issue, opposition to it always listed in the Republican Party platform. The idea of poor women or the wrong kind of women having too much sex or the wrong kind of sex has been used to justify cutting the social safety net, decreasing women's access to reproductive health care, taking children away from their mothers, and sterilizing women without their consent. The United States and the world remain vastly unequal places, marked by profound political, economic, and social disparities between men and women. Much of it boils down to sex, and in particular, how heterosexual men's desires and experiences exist as standard, while women's desires, experiences, and sexualities remain a kind of deviant from the norm, understood primarily in relation to men. That informs not only our sex lives, but our politics, our ideas of how men and women should be, our family structures, and ultimately, our happiness. Can you hear me? Can you see me? <laughs> no. Um, so my book is a graphic novel, so we're going to wake up my laptop and uh, get you, hopefully, the relevant images. Um, it's about uh, Our Lady of Birth Control, which is an affectionate name for Margaret Sanger, who I encounter in this book. Um, laptop is not cooperating. Escape and... Uh, <laughs> 
But um, there she is. Welcome, Maggie. Oh, it's a cartoonist encounter with Margaret Sanger, who you may know, or should. Pardon me if I keep looking over my shoulder because my remote doesn't work from this far away. Sorry because she was uh, the woman responsible for legalizing birth control by opening the first illegal birth control clinic in this country 100 years ago, for which she went to jail. Um, but I call it an encounter with Margaret Sanger because it's not all about her. Um, there's actually a thing or two about my own sex education, um, which happened in a very different time when birth control was highly legal um, and well-regarded, I thought, in the circles at least where I grew up. Um, when I was around the age of puberty, this book just appeared in my house. And um, like any good adolescent, I found my way uh, to it, and it went up to my room with me. Um, you can still get the wonderful uh, Our Bodies Ourselves, uh, maybe in this very bookstore where you should buy it and support Housing Works. But, um, so here were these grainy photos of down-to-earth looking people just talking about sex like it was a perfectly natural, wholesome thing. It was neither titillating nor forbidden. And I thought, wow, this must be that sexual revolution I keep hearing about. <laughs> but where? Um, so we had sex ed at my school, um, but they didn't really teach me everything I needed to know. The place where I felt like I really learned the sex ed that girls needed to know was at Planned Parenthood, um, which had been founded uh, by Margaret Sanger, incidentally. So um, you could say this was my first encounter with her, unknowingly, was um, when a bunch of us high school girls on a Saturday afternoon went to the clinic to get the pill. But no, they didn't just give us the pill. They gave us a whole education. They talked us through, they put us in little groups, and taught us every single method that was offered and told us all about the pros and cons. So I did get the pill, but I also got the education that I needed to make that choice, or later choices. Um, now I was ready for that revolution. Um, it was a weird moment, weird. It was a delightful interlude uh, after Roe v. Wade, uh, but before AIDS. And, um, I didn't realize at the time what a unique moment that was to, uh, to come of age. A uniquely safe period for sex, apparently safe, at least on the moral and physiological level. Never safe on the romantic level. <laughs> um, but back to Margaret's time, um, she grew up in a large family. Of, both her parents were Irish immigrants. And um, her first experience nursing which was her profession. What her first experience was nursing her mother. Um, so as a middle child, she assisted with a lot of births of her younger siblings, and mainly her mother's death from tuberculosis. So um, Anne Higgins, Margaret's mother, had 18 pregnancies, 11 live, live births, 10 survived childhood, and seven miscarriages. And she died at age 50. When Margaret began nursing uh, on the Lower East Side, she was an obstetric nurse, and she would go into the tenements and uh, help people with births and other problems at home. Often, uh, it was uh, consequences of illegal abortions. 
Uh, so one story she liked to tell about why she decided to go beyond nursing was of a woman she called Sadie Sachs, who she nursed back from the brink of death uh, from an infection due to a self-induced abortion. And Sadie asked how to prevent getting pregnant again. Now, it would have been illegal for the doctor to tell her, um, but uh, he hedged around and scolded her and told her her best bet was to tell her husband, Jake, to sleep on the roof. <laughs> Margaret felt bad. She didn't come back and uh, tell anybody uh, her about uh, the uh, rich woman's secrets, as they were known as. Uh, but three months later, she was called back. Sadie had the same problem, and this time she died. So that night, according to Margaret's autobiography, she vowed not to continue with palliative treatments and try to seek out the root of evil and change women's destinies. Now, Margaret also frequented, in her spare time, radical circles here in the village. Um, she was writing for the socialist paper as a member of the party. She hung out with anarchists and uh, syndicalists and, uh, most notably, free lovers. That's not her husband in that picture. Um, she took to free love um, probably better than most people do as a long-term lifestyle. Um, so her first line of attack was to publish a little magazine like the radical magazines she was familiar with and had contributed to, The Woman Rebel, to fight Comstockery. Comstock was the man who wrote the obscenity laws, lobbied for them, and enforced them as the U.S. Postal Inspector. Um, now, his definition of obscenity is typically general, as in you know it when you see it, but very specific when it comes to the prevention of conception or the inducement of abortion. So those were specifically deemed obscene and therefore illegal. And his reasons were specifically moral, the horrible thing it would do to women. And uh, it would be worse than war if women were not afraid. Afraid of pregnancy, I presume. So after she was indicted for the woman rebel, she decided she'd better give them the real news, and she published this family limitation pamphlet. That was not just advocating and inspiring women. It was the recipes. It was all the information she had researched in Holland and France and England, going to clinics on how to make your own birth control um, suppositories that are occlusive or spermicidal with things you can buy at your local druggist. Well, her husband did 30 uh, days in jail for this publication, um, and um, she decided to up the ante by opening an actual clinic in October of 1916 with her sister and another worker. And so all of the elements, that, the products that she demonstrated, you could buy legally if you could get a druggist to sell them to you to convince them that that thing that looks like a diaphragm, you needed it for a prolapsed uterus, not to not have babies. Um, so, uh, but the information of how to use it for contraception was illegal. Now, she was not hiding her light under a bushel. She sent out press releases and a letter to the DA. She was doing this as an act of civil disobedience in order to change the law. But she was still furious when they came and arrested her. Um, and she fought it in court. She, uh, she still was sentenced 30 days. Um, but on appeal, she began her first legal victory. Uh, the slight, 
broadening of the definition of disease for which uh, birth uh, contraception could be prescribed so that it would, um, it could include uh, being prescribed for pregnancy. Uh, just the New York law, just for married women, but it was the beginning of a long life of organizing, agitating, and uh, educating that would uh, create a different laws and the network of clinics we now know as uh, Planned Parenthood. Now, I always imagine if she came back around when I was doing clinic defense around 1990 and saw it, what would surprise her? First of all, it would surprise her that Planned Parenthood was doing abortions because they never did that during her lifetime. She hoped to prevent abortion by teaching people about birth control. But um, I think it would not surprise her that a woman in 2012 was shamed for advocating birth control because birth control that I had thought was so wholesome and sensible in my teen years was treated by Rush Limbaugh as a sign of sluttiness. And that was, that was really the thing that made me determined to get this book published, you know, that her story, that birth control really still is a threat. And uh, Sandra Fluke was shamed for advocating that it be included in student health plans. Um, and um, that's still where the battleground is right now. It's about health coverage. Well, thank you. That was really great. Um, so I wanted to start off with, uh, you guys really started to delve into this, but what does sexual liberation look like for you all personally, but then also on a collective state level? Whoever wants to start. <laughs> okay, I'll jump in. Um, I, I want to start by saying that I have full respect for all the women on the stage here, and you obviously, Amy, not just the speakers, but I wish that there had been more women of color and women of different backgrounds on the stage, yeah. because, and, and I'm on the curatorial committee of this Penn Festival, and I recommended many women of color and women of different backgrounds, and lesbian, bi women, and I, I wish there had been that this stage was more representative, because I feel, as the only woman of color who's also a Muslim, that I'm checking many boxes. So anyway, with this burden of representation now out the way, um, for me, personally, uh, sexual liberation is intimately connected with what it is on a political level, because I am speaking here as, as an Egyptian and as a Muslim, and as a woman who's not monogamous by choice, and as the, the, that same person waited until she was 29 years old to have sexual intercourse, penis to vagina. Um, having said all of that, the way that I now define sexual liberation and the sexual revolution that is in the subtitle of my book is that I own my body. And, and that ownership of my body means that it is my right to have sex with whomever, with their consent, obviously, because consent is a good thing, with whomever and whenever and in whatever way I choose, with a man, with a woman, with many men, with many women, you know, whatever I want. And, and because of that definition, when I fight marital rape, it's revolutionary. When I fight female genital mutilation cutting, it's revolutionary. When I fight for my right to walk down the streets of New York City or Bombay or Cairo, it's um, safely without being groped or harassed, it's revolutionary. So this, this old kind of adage, you know, the person is political is intimately strong through everything I do because 
one of the passages I didn't read in my book, which I, I had meant to, was how in 2009 I attended an event in Beirut, Lebanon that I thought I would never attend. And it was for the publication of uh, oral narratives of lesbian and bisexual women in Lebanon. Mm. So Lebanon is a country of Christians and Muslims and various sects and, and ethnic backgrounds. And on that stage in 2009, Beirut, Lebanon, were two women, one reading in English, one reading in Arabic, who openly identify as lesbian. So reading all those oral narratives about homophobia in the Middle East, uh, in Lebanon specifically, but also how when those people leave to supposedly escape homophobia, they come here, the so-called Western experience racism and Islamophobia. So it has to be personal and political for me. The fight that I put up to rid myself of the guilt and the shame, but also all the other fights that I think many people who don't come from my background, which is why I wished other people were represented here, fight and understand the politics of in a way that I think um, is more complex than, than sometimes seems from over here. Well, I think I've already told you I came of age during the sexual revolution. So I, I think that I certainly didn't feel inhibited. I felt very privileged to have my own sexual explorations. Um, and yet it was so complicated. Um, I just hope that, that women coming up now not only feel safe to explore, but I hope that they have the peace and strength to listen to the wisdom of their own hearts and know that they're doing the right thing and not just the thing that they feel they ought to be doing. You know? I mean, there was, a, there was an extent to which we acted out because it was like, hey, we're all having a good time, right? You know? And I think I'm sure that's very much going on now with hookup culture, you know. So that's about listening to yourself, knowing yourself. And, uh, and I hope that women will be cultivated, you know, young women, to be able to have that, that agency to do what, they, what is right for them, not what they see in the media. Yeah, I think I'd, I'd like to, to add to that. That's, uh, it's, it's very important, I think, to talk about the distinction between performing sexiness and sexuality and actually giving voice to your own desires and your own subjective experience as a woman because it's much rarer to kind of see that represented and that's what I gradually began noticing when I was researching my book is that we live in a very sexualized culture, we see nudity, we see porn, you know, it's very easy to find these things. Um, but this is sort of an outward performance. And just the fact that we've had a sexual revolution doesn't mean that, um, that it's easy, I think, as a young woman or as a woman of any age to access, to access your own desires and to speak your own desires. And, um, and this is sort of a, a distinction and a conversation that's been happening, obviously, for, for a very long time. And I'd like to show a, a slide, actually, um, of a very old book that, uh, that really inspired me that I love very much. Um, it's, uh, it's something I, I really wanted to show, because it's not very well known. This is a book that was published in Toronto in 1974. Um, by a woman who wrote, uh, wrote under the pseudonym A.S.A. Harrison, and um, and it was you know it was published sort of in the heyday of the 1970s, and this was it was verbatim interviews with 24 women. The long title of it is 24 Women 
um, talk about their orgasms. And it's just verbatim, documentary-style interviews with women of all different ages about, you know, when did you have your first orgasm and what did it feel like and what do orgasms feel like for you? And these long run-on sentences and it's kind of, it's kind of wild in that 70s way. But it, it, was, it was sort of an, an act, it was sort of a revolutionary act to, for women to actually talk about what does sex actually feel like as opposed to, you know, what does it look like or, you know, or it's, it's, um, and I think that uh, today we're kind of seeing, um, we're seeing books and websites that are inspired by this. And I'd like to show the second slide. Um, so this is a, a website uh, that was started a few years ago called How to Make Me Come. And it has a lot in common with that earlier book. It's, it's just letters, anonymous letters written by women about what really gets them off. Um, not that the orgasm is the be-all and end-all of sex. That's another sort of male-influenced idea that, you know, sex is like this linear act. But this is just women talking about what feels good for them and what feels bad for them. And sometimes writing letters directly to lovers that they've had where they've never been able to express what they really felt, but they're expressing it anonymously on a website. And um, it's an amazing website. And then the next slide is this also amazing website that's sort of like a program with video um, and it's called OMGYES. We're gonna, we're gonna get to it in a second, but it's, some of you may have heard of it. It's, it's been featured a few times, but it's basically, um, you watch all these videos of real women showing you how to make them come and showing different techniques and um, it's actually, it's the next one, but I think you guys saw it for a second. So it's, it's just this, uh, it's the subjective, it's the unseen, it's the unknown, it's the unsaid. Um, a lot of sexuality is invisible. A lot of women's sexual expression is invisible, you know, even simply when it comes to the anatomy of, of women and other, other people who have vaginas, um, trans men. Um, the act of orgasm is, is more invisible. The act of, of simply getting aroused is more invisible. So this is, is something that uh, it's kind of revolutionary to express, so. Well, I'm sort of primarily interested in the uh, political aspects of what sexual freedom and liberation means. So I don't know that we're going to have a full sexual revolution until our political forces and elected officials agree on a really basic idea, which is that sex for pleasure is a moral good. Um, and that it is a fundamental and important part of being a human being, not necessarily for every single human being, but the same way that we experience pleasure from taste, eating a great meal, from hearing beautiful music, from observing beautiful art, uh, from reading a wonderful book, that sex plays a similar role in many of our lives. It's, you know, I would guess the most popular recreational activity in the United States. Um, but that simple fact is met with such deep hostility. Um, and I think if we all were able to just agree, sex for fun is good. Sex can also be, it also is a responsibility, both to the person you're having sex with and to your own body and your own health. So how do we create a landscape in which we make all of that positive? 
And I think if we were doing that, we wouldn't be having these debates about access to abortion. We, wouldn't, we certainly wouldn't be having any debates about birth control and contraception. And I don't think we would be having the same kind of intractable debates about the role of women in society and the role of men. Um, I also think once we're a sort of more liberated society, we'll see more men involved in these conversations. I can't tell you how many panels I've been to about sex, and it's always women. And I think part of that is the fact that male heterosexual sexuality is our sort of cultural standard. And so men don't necessarily, straight men, don't often feel a need to interrogate it or think about it because it is just the baseline from which all of us operate. Um, but I think that is sort of part of the ingrained problem is that female sexuality is presented as this sort of um, this other and men get to be the default and because of that don't spend a lot of time on panels like this one um, or even thinking about the kind of ideas that we're discussing here today. Yeah, I, so I wanted to go back to what Mona said about representation of women of color because I think it's a really important point. Um, and I actually, I had asked the panelists if they had any questions that they wanted to talk about. Um, and Sarah said, how do we ensure that sex positive feminism isn't dominated by young, white, straight, able-bodied cis voices? So I actually want to turn that back on you all and say, you know, what do you do in your work um, that makes sure that that's not happening? And then also, you know, what are the movements that currently exist that are headed by women of color, trans women, queer women, and differently abled women that we can amplify and center? Well, there's been one of the attacks on, uh, on choice and the women's movement has taken the form of driving an insidious racial wedge um, by insinuating that Margaret Sanger uh, was trying to prevent people of color from being born. Um, this is completely false, and um, she offered women to have control over their bodies, and she, she reached out where she saw women of color were excluded from uh, New Deal clinics in the South. Um, she tried to reach out to create clinics there, where there were um, women from Harlem came and said that they were not served, or social workers came and invited her to open a clinic in Harlem. So these acts of outreach to give women the same education and information and access to birth control to use at their own discretion have been presented by anti-woman, anti-choice people as if it was some kind of racist conspiracy. Um, this is a really terrible thing that's created a, a kind of fear, even Planned Parenthood is often afraid to bring up the name of Margaret Sanger um, because they're afraid that it will be associated with racist policies. Yeah. So we're, we're sensitive there, <laughs> and we need to inform ourselves and do, do honest outreach. Okay, the way that I work on these issues in my own work, I mean, quite honestly, and I will just lay it out, is I consciously avoid having these discussions with white women, honestly, and here I am. <laughs> um, because I find that, you know, when I, when I take part in these discussions, I often have to talk about being a Muslim, being an Egyptian, and what all of those things entails, or entail rather, whereas, you know, for most white women who are on panels like this, they don't have to explain anything. You don't have to explain anything about being white, because if male heterosexuality is the default, well, so is whiteness. And so I generally try, unless, you know, to avoid these, these um, scenarios, unless I'm promoting my book, which has taken me to, you know, several white Western contexts, but my book has also taken me to other contexts. So for example, uh, a couple of weeks ago, I was in Mumbai, and I was in Mumbai to talk about gender 
at uh, a corporation, believe it or not, that had a two-day retreat for its vice presidents and CEOs. It's one of the biggest corporations in India. And I was invited by an openly gay vice president in this corporation called Godridge, and it's his job to make sure that they, they do diversify and they do have representation of LGBTQ and differently abled people. And I also took part in a panel discussion that I've never taken part in anything like it in the United States or other white Western contexts. And it was a discussion in which three Indian feminists and myself talked about sex, sexuality, and queerness. And in the audience were several differently abled people because one of the women on the panel um, started uh, an NGO called Sex and Disability. And so several other people from the NGO came. There were people whose visual, his vision, you know, they were differently abled in, in the visual sphere, so to speak, and others who were in wheelchairs. And at that discussion was a group called Labia, and that stands for lesbians and bisexual activists in India. And that group has been active for 20 years in India. So I'm able in these kind of contexts, or I was in Lahore last year, or Nigeria, South Africa, Bosnia, in these contexts to have very complex discussions where we, we bring all these different aspects where no one is the default, where no one's agenda is the agenda around which we revolve. And so in this panel discussion on sex in, in Mumbai, for example, I talked about how, because I waited so fucking long to have sex finally, I thought this, the concept of virginity was ludicrous and ridiculous, and I want to institute a lose your virginity day. This is seriously one of my goals. <laughs> and just to get rid of this fucking word hymen, just once and for all. And <laughs> so I, thank you. So I, you know, I said this and there was a young Muslim woman in, in the audience, you know, India is this wonderful country of many different groups and dozens of languages. And there was a young Muslim woman who was like myself, you know, when I was 19 and she was like, well, virginity isn't ridiculous for all of us, speak for yourself. And before I even said anything, another Indian Muslim woman in the audience said to her, excuse me, so many people keep telling us that we must wait, 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 that we need more people telling us it's ridiculous. So it's in those contexts, there are so many people working on this. There's one of the women on, on the, the panel runs a website called Agents of Ishq. Ishq is, a, is an Arabic and Urdu and other language words which means passion. And her website is for sex education and erotica in India. There is a feminist friend of mine who's from Senegal who lives in Ghana who started a website called Adventures from the, from the Bedrooms of African Women in which African women talk openly, so women from the continent talk openly about sex and sexuality. I recommended all of those people to Penn. I wish all of those women had been on this, on this stage with me because I can't represent all those women. It's impossible. And all of those women lead incredible sexual movements that again in a white Western context are unheard of. So I just hope in future festivals, voices like that are here and it's not just me or just one person. Yeah, I think in, in this, for this question, it's really, um, it's a responsibility of, of, I think, white writers about sex to make sure that, that a diverse uh, group of voices are heard, um, especially journalists who choose people to interview and who, um, and who you know, amplify their voices. Um, it can be very easy, uh, I think, for white journalists uh, myself included, to fall into um, a really, really easy pattern of interviewing um, young middle-class white women about how they're exploring their sexuality. 
And, um, and I think sex is not immune as a place of privilege. It's, it's a place where um, certainly the, the young white female body has always been held up as the ideal sexual object, the most desirable object. And because of that, I think sexuality operates differently for, um, for white women and for women of color who are exploring their own liberation. Um, there is a sense in which pushing those boundaries is perhaps easier in a different way, I think, for, for a white woman. Um, and I can't, you know, I can't speak for the experience of women of color, but I can see how, how privilege would operate in that space. So, um, so I, I think it's hugely important. Um, I think it's really important to keep aware of that uh, as journalists speaking to, to women. Yeah, I mean, I think a, a very basic responsibility of a journalist is to talk to people who don't look and think and live like you. Um, and so, of course, in, in my work and in this book and in most of what I report on, I always try and talk to women who don't come from my same background and don't look like me and come from, you know, a diversity of experiences. Um, but I want to touch on something that Mona kind of said and alluded to, which is that, of course, who you talk to matters, but also who gets to narrate both their stories and the stories of others matters also. Um, and the reality is, if you know, I'm going into a room of people who don't share my same cultural background, who don't share my values, um, whose own values and assumptions and motivations, I can kind of guess at and I can ask questions around, but I you know, can't necessarily dig super deep into, um, I can do my best at doing my job. And I can try really, really hard, but I don't know that I'm ever going to be quite as effective as someone who can translate that experience of a particular group of people with whom they share a certain cultural background um, to a wider audience. And I'll give sort of just an example. I uh, was in Niger writing a story for The Guardian about why Niger is the highest birth rate in the world. And women in Niger have an average, an average of seven children apiece. And so I was interviewing women in rural Niger, in villages, um, you know, women who were very generously sitting down with me and giving me their time. And you know, I, I would ask questions that, as a reporter, made sense to me. Like, you know, why is seven children a good number? Or you know, however many children they had, why did you want to have five instead of three? And to a one, these women looked at me like I had three heads and said, well, seven's bigger than three. You know, I'd be like, if you ask somebody, why is $7,000 better than $3,000? Well, you idiot, of course it's better. Um, and I, the reality is, that, you know, I wrote a story I, I was proud of, but I don't think that I ever fully got it. I was not, I just, I, I tried very hard. I, you know, showed up with empathy and thoughtfulness and tried to do my job as well as I could. But the reality is I was not going to be able to write that story as well as somebody who was either a part of that culture or a part of a culture that was at least a bit more adjacent to it and could understand some of the basic assumptions that the people they were interviewing had. Um, of course, that doesn't mean that we can't report on people who are different than us, right? If that's the standard, then we're all in a lot of trouble and we're going to live very myopic and sad lives. Um, but there is also a real strength, not only in having narrators of their own lives be a diverse group, but in having journalists and filmmakers and people who are telling the stories of others um, who are not themselves also come from a diversity of backgrounds because we're simply going to get 
richer, more accurate, more interesting, and more probing stories. Um, so I guess that's sort of to, to second the call for making sure that festivals like this uh, are diverse, not just racially, but also in terms of where people are, uh, people of different nationalities and sexualities and backgrounds of all, of all types. Um, I want to make sure that we have a little time. We have about five minutes left to take uh, audience questions. I know, oh no, I mean, this was great. It just went so, so quick. Um, so we don't have a, a microphone, so just shout out and I'll repeat it back. That's very nice of you to say that. 56, 56 oh, over here. 49. It's oh. <laughs> a good looking panel. It's because we have a lot of sex. <laughs> no, but I agree with you. I agree with you. Yes. Right, and I will, I will put age uh, along with all the different, you know, identifiers because you're absolutely right. And I think we don't hear enough from women as they get older about what their sex lives are like. So you're absolutely right. My next comic strip is about an old lady. I'm afraid it doesn't have any sex in it. But I think a lot of people kept saying, "Well, why are you interested in that?" And I'm like, "Come on, she's an amazing woman. She walked across country nonstop for 28 years talking about peace. You know." But I think she wasn't sexy, and it was, it was, so it was a hard sell. No. That's another liberation, I think you're right. Thank you very much, and I, I do want to hear about your research. Um, it's my understanding that, okay, she, she funded the research of the pill uh, at the very end of her life. 
Right, she channeled her friend's money into it. It wasn't her own money. She got people to give money to the research. Um, thank you. And uh, I really, I do take it seriously. I have studied a lot about the eugenics charges around her. Um, I feel that her, her stance on eugenics, her idea that eugenists ought to be interested in birth control was more based on preventing disability and should be more, uh, she may have overlooked the, the race of the people who were being uh, experimented on if that was still during um, her involvement with the issue. But um, in terms of her actual motivations, she never endorsed racial categories for eugenics. She talked about it primarily in terms of health. So to that extent, I think the modern disability rights movement should be more offended by her eugenics uh, statements than people of color because it was more based on that. But I will, I will talk to you after. Thank you. I think we have time for one more, one more question. There? So I think that there's this narrative around feminist movements that we all need to kind of come together and be one movement and have one set of priorities and then we'll be the most effective. Um, I don't think that's true. Women are more than half the population. We are going to have different priorities, different interests, different things that we think need to get done. Um, to me, the question is not do we have to be you know, does, do we have to be, I don't want to say we don't have to be inclusive, of course we do, but do we have to kind of come together under one single umbrella? Um, and no, I frankly think the feminist movement can be stronger if we have people who are pursuing kind of different paths underneath a big tent. That said, I think what the feminist movement does need to do is consider what is sort of on our priority list and whose interests do we kind of put to the forefront. And that doesn't have to be one thing, right? It's not like it's a top 10 list and only one thing can go on each line. Um, but, you know, of course, the feminist movement, like every other movement, um, like any other kind of group of people in a sexist and racist and hierarchical societies, reproduce many of those hierarchies. And so I think for, for us, the challenge is really considering, you know, doing what we're doing here, which is whose voice isn't on the stage and who aren't we hearing from. Um, but then also considering when we're putting forward policy goals and political priorities, who does this benefit? And are we looking at who's at the kind of proverbial bottom of the totem pole here? Um, who's vo yeah, whose voices aren't being included and whose needs are being best met and how, uh, whose needs are kind of being 
subverted or told to kind of told to wait their turn. Um, and I think if the feminist movement doesn't mean we're always going to come to the same conclusion, right? To those questions, we're still going to reach different answers. But I think that kind of interrogation of ourselves and of our kind of fellow comrades uh, is is more valuable than an argument that we all need to be kind of under the exact same umbrella and like holding hands and singing kumbaya, which I know isn't what you were saying, but. <laughs> and, I, and I'll add real quick, I mean, I think what's happening in the United States now is really important. The recognition that there is a fascist fuck as president who is racist, misogynist, Islamophobic, homophobic, ableist, so many other ists. I think has really crystallized what the problem is for us. And we look around and the recognition that 53% of white women voters voted for him, knowing that he's a sexual predator and a fascist fuck. And so we understand now that it's not just about being women. It's, it's not, I'm not interested in just having a woman, like Nancy Pelosi today said outrageous things about reproductive rights. And you know, once again, another politician, a woman too, is willing to throw us under the bus. For, you know, fucking pot. What the fuck is wrong with the Democrats? I don't know. So this, this is what we have to recognize, that, 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 that sometimes you have to look at a woman and say, just because you're a woman does not mean I support you just because you're a woman. I, I'm in here for feminism, you know? And then you look around a city like New York, the fact that it's just now at the Elizabeth Sackler Gallery for Feminist Art that there is an exhibit called We Wanted a Revolution of Black Women Artists and Women of Color. What took them so long? You know what took them so long? So now we're finally, because we're being crystallized into this, finally seeing it through the body, unfortunately, of Donald Trump, you know, the ugly image of what he represents. It's about fucking time. So I think, yes, we all have different roles to play. And we, have, we can also amplify. We don't speak for anyone. We amplify voices that don't have the stage that we have. It's a massive privilege to be on the stage. I cannot speak for every Muslim woman. I cannot speak for every woman of color. What I hope to do is that there are others who share similarities and differences with me who will be on this stage for the sake of promoting feminism. Okay, well, thank you guys so much for joining us and for asking such involved questions and thank you so much again to everyone on stage. Uh, this was really an honor. Um, have a great night. Like the bossanova, love should swing. They used to harmonize two souls in perfect time. Now the song.